how can we envision the sweeping changes to entire landscapes? Ownership of commons, the air, soils, water, biological diversity, back to the as severe critical as biological disorient. In this epic struggle to preserve a habitable that planet, is the only thing which is the place that you love is now under siege. Deregulated commerce is becoming a threat to the life on this planet. These are system problems. Our humanity is We shouldn't state. ask whether we can survive These are existential questions not. as much as they are systemic questions. Put these Action informed by knowledge of get down place. To work. You're listening to the Schumacher Lectures, a channel hosted by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. The Schumacher Lectures feature speakers who challenge entrenched ways of thinking while exploring how to build a new economy that serves both people and the planet. That any public program to preserve land or produce food is hopeless if it does not tend to right the balance between numbers of people and acres of land and to encourage long-term stable connections between families and small farms. Gordon Thorne delivered the speech Community Arts Trust in February 2009. Let's have a look at it. Thorne's was originally a five-story department store in Northampton, Massachusetts. And Bramble Hill Farm was a typical exhausted dairy farm in, nor- in neighboring Amherst. These books will give you some sense of what I will talk about this afternoon. The first mailing that I received from Susan about this talk was an, en- was an empty envelope. And I thought, wow, this is right on. It's invisible. But I learned it was a mistake, and then I got the real one. Perhaps it's a combination of the two, the invisible and the visible, which best describes the journey my wife Annie and I have been on for the past 30 years, as ape and thorns the Open Field Foundation and Bramble Hill Farm have come into existence in our lives. The structure of the visible world of the 501c3, the foundation and the title of director, are all real and part of what has been created. But for us, the most interesting parts of the story are invisible, because it really is a story about the intangible sides of life, community and imagination, and above all, the importance of defending our right to create in the face of a world that is hell-bent on consuming itself. A lot of people don't realize that the 501c3 available potential enterprises actually spawned grape, greater ape, the real estate trust that was created to hold Thorns Market. Grape was created in large part to save the third floor art space. The Open Field Foundation, a private operating foundation formed to purchase and hold Bramble Hill Farm, also grew grew out of our work with APE, and an increasing belief that artists and farmers shared some of the same issues concerning space and land, and a general disenfranchisement from the prevailing market economy. And a new project, Window, an LLC which holds a new building at 126 Main Street, almost next door to Thorns, was acquired with our share of the proceeds from the sale of Thorns in 2006 for the express purpose of keeping Ape's foot in the door on Main Street as the third floor of Thorns and other historic art spaces were being converted to office and condo space. These projects are closely related and connected for me. They all originate with Ape, and they are all essentially about space, and they all explore aspects of the developing question 
Can one make a compelling case that certain spaces where creative work is developed should, like certain tracts of land, belong to the common and be protected from the speculation of development in the marketplace? My interest in this question has evolved slowly over the last 12 years as our work with rebuilding Bramble Hill Farm began to inform my thinking about the way the relationship between the art spaces and the retail spaces in Thorns were changing. But the roots of my interest in this question, <clears throat> and especially in the way open space as a catalyst for creative work, growing images or organisms, goes way back. So I'm going to digress a bit and talk about some of the experiences in my life before we became involved with Thorns, because they really shaped the way I think about life and the way I have approached these projects. I spent the first 10 years of my life in a school which wouldn't let me go to the library unless I was on the honor roll and made me go to study hall instead of shop or art whenever I flunked a Latin test. I never went to the library at that school, and I was in shop and art classes only long enough in sixth grade to build a go-kart out of two-by-fours and a Briggs & Stratton lawnmower engine, <clears throat> which went 30 miles per hour on which I drove all around town for several years. This early introduction to learning may have contributed to my totally undistinguished academic career, but in spite of it, I made my way into the art and architecture school at Yale in 1963, where life began to make sense to me for the first time. I graduated with an MFA in painting in 1966 and found a studio in downtown New Haven, which it turned out <clears throat> had historically always been rented to graduating painters as a way station to New York. I happened to arrive the day one of the artists was moving on. I signed a one-year lease the same day, never made the move to New York, and would spend the next eight years until 1974 immersed in my own work and imagination, processing what seemed like an endless flood of images and ideas. I went through a lot of paint, explored a lot of materials, and I finally began to learn how to make the things I could only imagine as a child. Although my personal explorations, paintings, and journals continued, by 1970, I was being drawn to the larger world outside my studio. In 1971, I opened part of my studio up as an exhibition and small-scale performance space. And because my studio was right on Main Street, people began to drop in and hang out. I didn't have a name for the space or a plan, but shows happened and we even started getting reviewed. The new space spawned a series of collaborative projects with other artists. One of the most interesting took place completely within the mails, in envelopes. It grew and expanded for four years and wound up connecting me to a worldwide network of artists and events. I also created a mythical business called Hammer, a sort of holding company. It was by intent just a rubber stamp and some fancy stationery, but it birthed many subsidiaries, each with its own rubber stamp. Its main function was to imply tremendous activity, <laughs> to create a sort of vortex of expectation designed to link people together in some mysterious way. It sounds, in retrospect, a lot like what Bernie Madoff has created. <laughs> I became increasingly interested in these imaginary networks and communities and the thread w threads which held them together. I would create lists of people that would include friends and businesses, sometimes galleries, and then institutions like J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI, the Pentagon, and even the Dead Letter Office. <clears throat> I would make up a long rambling story, and each day I would send a frag fragment 
in an elaborately altered envelope to an individual, along with the names of the other people sharing the list. I imagined the face-off between these disparate forces, their option to dance or fight, depending on their understanding of the nature of the list they found themselves on. James Carse, in his book about infinite games, talks about the difference between finite games and infinite games. The goal of a finite game is to win as quickly and with as large a margin as possible. The goal of an infinite game is to continue playing as long as possible with the maximum number of players. Business, development, and war are finite games. Art and agriculture and life are infinite games. I was definitely interested in exploring the world of infinite games. This was a time in history when virtually all structures of community and authority were undergoing transformation. There was a lot of social experimentation taking place and a tremendous freedom of material and intent. I began to look at my life as a story, which I seemed to be following at the same time that I was making it up. The making was the tool and the space, the arena, which enabled me to engage with the developing content of my life. I imagined the whole of life itself like a library, not a traditional sort of library, but the sort of library which Richard Brodigan described in 1970 in his book, The Abortion. He said, and I really love this quote, we register all the books we receive here in our library. <clears throat> we, we register all the books we receive here in our library contents ledger. It is a record of all the books we get, day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year. They all go into the ledger. We don't use the Dewey Decimal Classification or any index system to keep track of the books. We record their entrance into the library in the library contents ledger, and then we give the book back to its author, who is free to place it anywhere he wants in the library, on whatever shelf catches his fancy. It doesn't make any difference where a book is placed because nobody nobody ever checks them out and nobody ever comes here to read them. This is not that kind of library. This is another kind of library. This was life as I experienced it in those years. It was not just the content of these experiences, but also the quality which would inform the way I came to make decisions. Another remarkable aspect of Brodigan's library involved the transfer of the job of librarian itself which seemed to happen in one of two ways. The librarian either decided to leave, in which case his replacement would unannounced meet him as he opened the door to go, or he would come back from shopping, say, and find someone had already packed his belongings, placed them on the sidewalk, and was sitting at his desk. In 1975, Annie and I left New Haven and moved to Vermont in a not dissimilar way. We just began a new life. Everything from my studio, which wouldn't fit into a flat file, I took to the New Haven landfill, which at the time was a great prairie of garbage that I could actually drive my truck into the middle of. I did drive several times that day, creating my first land-based retrospective. I went back the next day to photograph it, and it was already buried. Along with the flat file, I took with me to Vermont the indelible experiences of those eight years. Within months, my brother, who was living in Northampton and teaching part-time at Smith and the University of Massachusetts, called and said, we should come to Northampton and check out this amazing space. Thus began what Carl Jung would call the second half of life. 
The space we went to look at was the top floor of what was to become within months Thorns Market. My brother and I signed a lease for a third of the top floor, about 6,000 square feet, and as in New Haven, I just moved myself in. I'm working on writing a history of our involvement with Thorns. There are so many fascinating stories and relationships, so much information about how community forms and comes apart and evolves. The following excerpt from this writing describes what was behind our vision of Thorns in the early years, and I'm just going to read it from, the, from that. Annie and I came to Northampton from Vermont to explore with my brother and his wife the possibility of renting the top floor of the then Main Street Center. Stuart Brand's whole earth catalog had come and gone, but its legacy of access to tools was still very present. We were all caught up by the primacy of tools and the importance of making, which Brand's catalog set forth. In our own individual ways, the four of us were, were each engaged in shaping our lives around this fundamental process of making. We were collecting and constructing the tools to carry out the process and searching out or building the spaces in which it could happen. We saw the large open space on the top floor of, Thor of the Main Street Center as a space in which to explore a range of individual and collaborative projects, and we agreed to rent a third of the top floor for a year. Our paths and our interests very quickly began to diverge, and my brother was already involved in several other projects in town. And he was actually not in the space very much, except when teaching a UMass design class, which met there once a week. I had a different vision of the space than my brother, and I was committed to keeping it completely open and flexible. I had begun a working relationship with Dance Gallery, the resident dance company at Mount Holyoke College at the time, who, looking for space outside the college to work, had walked in off the street one day. I was in the space every day, working on various projects, and began to work in parallel with Dance Gallery. I was also spending an increasing amount of time trying to present the work of other artists and performers, who began to discover the space as a venue for performance and exhibition. The space began to come alive with young artists and their work. Then suddenly, within a matter of months, the Main Street Center was for sale, and our diverging paths came back together. A new set of conversations began, this time focused on the possibility of buying the whole building. I had no experience or interest in becoming a landlord, let alone managing a building with 20 tenants, selling stuff that I was never going to be interested in buying. But as we talked, I began to see the possibility of using the income-producing capacity of a building the size of the center to financially and operationally support a space which by its nature and intent I knew would not be income producing. My brother was an architect and had bought and leased property in town and was not intimidated by the business nature of a building, the size and complexity of the center. He had a vision of a Middle Eastern market made up of small, vibrant, owner-owned reality one chose, given the right tools, a plan, integrity, and enough cash to keep the banks at bay for a few years. We bought the whole building in December of 1976. Annie and I wrestled with the decision, but in the end conceded that although we didn't want to buy the building, we couldn't not buy it. If successful as a business, Thorns would provide <clears throat> an income separate from my personal life which could remove me from the role of patron and begin to float the support of a nonprofit-driven art space on a broader base. 
The goal was to provide affordable space for the people and work we wanted in the space, and not just those who could afford it, a situation virtually mandated by the demands of a market-driven economy. The first 10 years owning Thorns was a scramble on all fronts. <clears throat> the systems were old, the roof was old, the few tenants were new, and we were even newer. None of us slept very much. The second 10 years for me saw the building attain its peak of development as an integrated community of artists, artisans, and retail enterprises. It was healthy, dynamic, and successful, a vortex of relationship like Hammer, but more than just a rubber stamp. At the end of this period, the partnership split and the building coasted. Its days were numbered, but it had enough mass and momentum to continue to draw new energy until its sale in 2006. In the early years, Ape was sharing the top floor with a large CETA office. Secretaries would watch rehearsals during breaks, and we always kept the space open to the public, unless there was a performance in progress. The Ape office became the office for the building. We were very fortunate to have Andre Olson and Dance Gallery be the first artists to answer our flyer for available space. They had been followed by Roy Fodre and Sheena C. and their No Theater Company. These were incredibly resourceful people. The building was full of empty space in the first years, and they developed new work, performed, created advertising spots for businesses. They worked in stores and choreographed several amazing fashion shows. They helped create the illusion that the building was thriving, when in reality, the stores on the second floor were actually playing cards in the hallway three days before Christmas, the second year. Their presence and their contacts began to bring other artists in, and the artists would work and perform and exhibit, and there would be newspaper reviews, and the Thorns name would appear in the papers, and people would come check it out and see what all this activity was. The core of artists who worked and rehearsed at Ape took over an increasing amount of the programming, bringing in guests for residencies and for work and performance. There were painters, dancers, and then musicians who formed the janitorial and security crews. At the peak of the building's evolution, there were so many talented musicians around that Ape built a small recording studio in a storage closet. And because as security crew they had access to the building, the top floor was often going full tilt late into the night. Slowly, the retail space began to fill, mostly with young pioneers like Leslie Farron, looking for a space to start a first business. What, whatever money was generated went back into the building in those early years, and it was always enough to keep us moving forward. We never had to put more cash into the project of our own. Ape's first attempts at funding had been rejected on the grounds that we didn't have a track record or a credible management structure. I was still operating like Bernie on the assumption that a rubber stamp that said Ape really was all we needed. I tried another track, <clears throat> reluctant to let go of the old hammer concept that business, if not creative, should at least be fun. I glued into the section of the grant that was titled Summary of Program Description, pictures of several of the resident artists, as well as a picture of a piece of brain coral with a wig on it. Under them, I glued pictures of the board of directors from a Citicorp annual report with the simple captions, before funding and after funding. <laughs> the phone rang a few days later, and I was told that we could not submit our grant that way. <laughs> this is really true, and, and I, but I said that we already had. And we were funded that year and have been funded ever since. 
From 1986 to 1996, the building went through major renovations in the systems and also in the design and graphics of new storefronts. Thorns and the town became more upscale. Northampton became a destination. We did a major renovation of the galleries, the art offices, and the Thorns offices. Anne and I were spending most of our time in the building, and we created studios connected to each other and to the galleries and art office. Anne had developed a set of programs using a friend's land, which worked with a small group of children. They met in the spring and the fall to explore building a community, fabricating tools, shelters, and rules. She worked with the same group for eight years until they were in seventh grade. Then their siblings formed a second group. With her studio space, the group could now <clears throat> work on projects during the winter. This led to several month-long projects over the years in the performance space, galleries and in Anne's studio, open to the schools. One year the focus was Wales, another it was Wings. Dance gallery, no theater, and many other artists became involved. Ape's basic economic policy was to take 20% of any money made in the space, but nothing up front. No one was ever excluded from working in the space because of money. The only hard and fast rule was that the space had to be returned to empty when work or a performance was over. The next person should have the experience of a neutral place uncluttered by anyone else's imaginings. This policy held to the end. When you compare the photograph of the space taken in 1977 and the, one, and the last one that was taken in 2007, they show exactly the same big empty space. In fact, when people would come to the top floor and step out of the elevator, they would often say, oh, there's nothing up here. They haven't developed it yet. This will always be one of the things I am proudest of, that the top floor stayed undeveloped for 30 years while a building increased in value from 450000 to $6.5 million. In 1995, my brother decided he wanted to sell the building, and I agreed on the condition that we first try to sell it to a core of tenants who had been with us from the beginning and had expressed an interest. We entered a year-long process which ended in bitterness and frustration for all parties concerned. The failure of the building sale clarified a split in the great partnership, which I had not really believed existed up until that point. The divide was deep, and I knew then that it would never be resolved. At its core, the split was over the value of APE, the spaces, the programs, <clears throat> the programs and the mission, and also the way the partners viewed the concept of enough. <clears throat> At the same time, in 1996, that the Thorns partnership was unraveling, Lisa Thompson, who had been part of the original dance gallery and in 1979 had left for New York and eventually California, returned and became associate director of APE. I had curtailed most of the activity in the space to get some distance from other people's work and also to try to get back to my own. Lisa arrived just in time. She stepped into the void and programs fired right up again. She continued to direct an increasing number of, and range of events and programs until the day we left Thorns. Without Lisa, Ape might well have disappeared from sight. At this time, <clears throat> I also created the Open Field Foundation to purchase the Jacques farm in Amherst. There were reasons for this decision, <clears throat> which perhaps taken together constitute a plausible line of thought. I was, however, struck by the fact that the farm wrapped around an elementary school and an environmental center, and there were gates and barbed wire separating all three from each other. 
If for no other reason, I bought the farm to open the gates and coil up the barbed wire. Other reasons included Anne's work with children and young adults, which drew heavily on experiences in the natural world. Thorns was also running out of space, and I was looking for a new place to set up a shop. And through no prowess of my own, I was attached to the giant tech bubble of the 90s and sensing that if there was ever a time to buy a totally depleted asset like an old dairy farm, this was probably it. I quite literally bought the farm. I, I signed the papers as I had signed my first lease in New Haven, quickly. I had been on the board of Brookfield Farm for several years, which had confirmed my feeling that there was much to be learned about community and making through understanding more about some of the young people being drawn into agriculture and farming. Issues around local food and fertility and sustainability were of increasing interest to me. My <clears throat> reading list was changing and growing, and the Schumacher Library became an important reference point. I wanted to unwind the dominance of retail in Thorns and link it to a farm, which would link it back to tools and food and the Whole Earth Catalog. At the time Open Field was formed, a great deal of work had already been done to identify the importance of agricultural land for the health of our sources, for the health of our sources of food and also the health of community itself. The development rights to the farm had already been placed in the Agricultural Protection Program in 1980, mandating that the land only be used for agriculture and removing it from the arena of speculative development. If the land had been unprotected, the only person able to afford it would have been a developer with housing in mind. The Foundation's mission was to pick up where the APR program left off and to rebuild the diversity of the flora and the fauna to restore the fertility of the soil, making it possible to create enterprises which could sustain themselves and eventually the infrastructure of the land and buildings. The same vision originally fueled thorns, and I've always maintained that it was the fertile ground created through a myriad network of relationships, which was instrumental in the building's success as an arena for business and also as an art space where original and challenging work could be grown. It became apparent to me that although the central issues and values of working land and creative space were very similar, and the farm and ape shared an estranged relationship to our supermarket and entertainment-driven culture, Communities had developed strategies for protecting some land from development because they had come to value open space in its own right in their communities. When a community attaches actual value to something, they will find a way to preserve it. As with Ape and Thorns, the goal of Open Field was to protect the space where, in this case, farming could continue to happen. Bramble Hill Farm had gone through several iterations in the past 10 years, some of them dramatic and one cataclysmic. The journals I brought um, in mostly these big books um, uh, give some sense of the scale of what we undertook in rebuilding the farm. Thorns began very slowly and developed slowly and was driven by an essentially inclusive community-informed vision. Bramble Hill Farm tried to develop from the same vision, but I made a Faustian decision early on to try to jumpstart the process. And although we managed to build a whole new set of farm structures from fencing to barns and greenhouses and also restored carefully much of the old farm infrastructure, in 2001, I was forced to close the farm down. 
We had in a, in a few short years created an example of everything which is wrong with profit-driven industrial agriculture. <clears throat> the vision driving it was toxic, exclusive, and mean-spirited. And it's, <clears throat> it's, it was a hard time to, to realize how quickly you could create the opposite of what you really wanted. So no gates opened in those first years, and, and no barbed wire was taken down. But when, <clears throat> but when the farm became mine again at the start of 2002, Hans Leo, who had been with the farm from the beginning and, and is currently its farm manager, spent a year unstringing the miles of old barbed wire <clears throat> and we cut the chains on all the gates. We began again to build the working farm programs from scratch, this time in a way that I was more familiar with. We just literally and figuratively opened the gates. It took a while, but Bramble Hill Farm is now home to Old Friends Farm and Greenhorn Farm, small startup operations that are growing at a sustainable rate with skilled and generous youthful energy. The farmers live at Bramble Hill, as does the infamous animal warden of Amherst, Carol Hepburn who has a collection of animals gleaned from her many encounters during her working day. There's a llama, a 40-year-old burro, some assorted sheep and goats, an assortment of chickens, ducks, and one duck named Chuck, who thinks he's a chicken. <laughs> there are children's programs and a working relationship, thank you, between the Common School, the Hitchcock Center, and Bramble Hill under the letterhead of the Larch Hill Collaborative. In 2005, a decision was made to put thorns on the market again. And I knew my brother <clears throat> wanted out of the building, and I felt that I had to let him, as managing partner, structure the terms of the building sale as he saw fit. The goal was to establish the highest defensible market for the building, uh, the highest defensible market value for the building, as structure, as location, and as a collection of leases. I had had 30 years to convince the great partnership to explore ways of tying the financial support of the top floor to the economic mass of the building in some way, which could eventually perhaps serve as a template for other market-driven market ventures, even the city perhaps, to address the need to subsidize certain spaces so that artists could afford to stay in the communities they had been instrumental in creating. In the end, I was not successful, and what Grape put on the block had nothing to do with Ape. It, it was a piece of real estate. <clears throat> the, <clears throat> the end of the Grape partnership and the final sale left Annie and I with a large check. We stayed on in the building as tenants for a year, during which time we moved 30 years of personal material as well as the accumulations of a theater and a gallery operation into storage at the farm. <clears throat> Lisa kept programs going for the last year while we were, while we were at APE, and so there was never a hitch in, in APE's programming schedule. Toward the end of July 2006, having looked at a wide range of possible new homes for APE, I looked at a building right down the block from Thorns on Main Street. It was being sold off as three condominiums. I'm not sure whether anyone would have bought the whole building at the list price, but it seemed possible 
that at least one condo unit would go, and then the building would be worthless to me. I had been looking for a fixer-upper, open warehouse, loft-type space, and found the opposite, a fully subdivided, renovated, high-end condo, which would have to be unmade to be usable. A project and a concept which many felt was financially irresponsible and would have been financially inconceivable without the money from the sale of thorns. I put together a cursory inspection of the building, formed a hasty LLC called Window to hold it until we can transfer it to Ape, and I bought it. The closing was the 19th of September, 2007, and demolition work on the space uh, began in the first week of October. Window is a brand new venture, mostly unknown at this time. What I am clear about is that it is a foot in the door. It is a choice to not leave the town. It takes a piece of valuable Main Street retail property and declares for starters that there is nothing for sale. Like Brodigan's library, this is a different kind of place. I need a Kleenex. Have you got a Kleenex? Oh, I've got one. Here, I got one. I did bring one. Thanks. Yeah, this is a different kind of place. Its acquisition was only made possible by the fact that over 30 years, the value of open space in Northampton appreciated enormously to the exclusion of large parts of the population, including the artists and educators, who historically have not been able to share in the benefits of rising real estate value. I believe that it will be virtually impossible for artists and art spaces to survive economically in Northampton in the future unless we come to terms with the fact that we are living with two separate economies. The one which shapes our understanding of value, the market economy, is the one we are all familiar with. It's driven by commodity exchange. But there is a second economy, a cultural economy, driven by what Lewis Hyde has described as gift exchange. We currently talk a lot about the value of the cultural economy for the market economy. The way <clears throat> that the arts, by doing what they do in a community, help create the necessary arena for market exchange. We watched this happen in Thorns in the early years. It is happening in Pittsfield and in many other towns and cities. There is little serious conversation, however, concerning the way that the market economy, doing what it does, let's say making money, supports the cultural economy. Lewis Hyde talks clearly about this difference and describes how certain categories of human ex enterprise are not well organized or supported by market forces. Family life, religion, public service, pure science, artistic practice, education, and agriculture. None of these operate well when framed in terms of exchange value. Historically, any community that values these things will find non-market ways to organize them. It will develop what he describes as gift exchange institutions dedicated to their support. In the past century, hospitals and libraries, pure science and the humanities have all been underwritten by democratic communities that tax themselves to support things of value that would not otherwise thrive. The arts in this country are often absent from this list and have historically had to rely on financial support from individual patrons or the competitive arena of government and private foundation grants. Because the health of any community is tied to diversity, and diversity depends on a dialogue between both business and the arts, it will ultimately fall to community to build and maintain the bridge between the two. There needs to be a new support structure created for present and future art spaces. If communities want to protect the remaining art spaces, secure new space for new work, 
or replace valuable space, like the third floor of Thorns, which has been converted to office use. Ape has been working recently with the Schumacher Society and Susan Witt, using materials and templates she created with the Schumacher Society and its past president, Robert Swan. Ape has been exploring the creation of an urban community arts trust, CAT, which would provide for the arts the type of support that a land trust currently provides for local farms and affordable housing initiatives, and which broad-based taxation provides for other important cultural enterprises not driven by market exchange. APE applied for and received a Mass Development Feasibility Study and Technical Assistance Grant administered by the Massachusetts Cultural Council to study the feasibility of purchasing and renovating the Roundhouse, an historically significant building in the center of downtown Northampton. Working with the Northampton Center for the Arts, the Northampton Arts Council, New Century Theater, Pilgrim Theater, artists from the visual arts community, and choreographers from the dance community. And supported in part by this grant, APE in its new office and window and under <coughs> Lisa's expert direction is working to develop a series of proposals for the renovation of the Roundhouse into a theater, rehearsal, exhibition, office, and cafe complex. This facility would replace the lost APE space at Thorns as well as the Northampton Center for the Arts which could lose its space in four years. These spaces have been important venues for theater, dance, and the creation of new work. Because of its central relationship to the Academy of Music, Pulaski Park, the proposed Hilton Hotel, and City Hall, a renovated roundhouse would serve as the hub of a map being developed by Abe, showing existing and potential art spaces in the community. And the way in which, if linked by a shared mission, they have the potential to function as a type of campus cultural center for the town. A final observation in closing. When I, when I open the arts section of the Times on Sunday, I am increasingly struck by how similar it is to opening the doors to stop and shop. So much art, so much food. Statistics and a general crisis in the collective health of our culture suggests, however, that about 90% of what we see when the stop and shop door opens is not actually food, and if not actually addictive, has minimal nutritional value. I think that 90% of what we see when we open the Times art section is not actually art, but entertainment, and if not actually addictive, has minimal nutritional value. The arts don't have the statistics yet, or the health related scares that increasingly help keep agriculture and open land in the news. But I think the equivalent statistics and awareness of what is being lost in our, in our community is coming. And in any case, it's certainly worth a hell of a try because it's all positive development anyway. To hear more talks like this one and discover more than 30 years of Schumacher lectures, visit centerforneweconomics.org. The Schumacher Center for New Economics Research Library houses the collections of E.F. Schumacher, Robert Swan, and other influential thinkers in the new economy movement. You can strengthen our mission by purchasing a copy of your favorite Schumacher lectures at centerforneweconomics.org slash order dash pamphlets. Our work is supported by listeners like you. You can donate to our cause at centerforneweconomics.org slash donate. 
This library and the Schumacher Lectures capture powerful voices for economic reform. Voices with the strength to move and inspire. They frame and inform action, but are not themselves the action. At a time when our earth is in crisis and our communities face complex challenges, we are all charged with creating solutions. The Schumacher Center's applied work seeks to implement the principles described by these speakers within the context of the Berkshire Hills of Massachusetts. This work includes crafting innovative leases that share equity and improvements while holding land in community trust, building Berkshires, a local currency designed to democratize monetary issue and keep money circulating in the region, and engaging citizens in supporting the development of regionally appropriate businesses, creating local jobs while retaining local ownership and control. You can support our work in a new economy by making a donation at centerforneweconomics.org slash donate. Or call us at 413-528-1737 to make an appointment to visit our research library and office at 140 Jug End Road, Great Barrington, Massachusetts.